Matthew 26 begins by saying, And it came to pass, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said unto his disciples, You know (coughs) that after two days is the feast of the Passover, and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. Then assembled together the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people unto the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas. And they consulted that they might take Jesus by subtlety, no one knowing, and kill him. But they said, not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar among the people. So Jesus, when he had finished all of these sayings, we've been with him since a question in the beginning of Matthew chapter 24. Uh, When shall these things be? What shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the age? And we've kind of listen to him go through that, the things that are coming, 70 A.D., and then on to the days that we're living on, the, the, in the end of the, day, of the age, and then the judgment that comes, and then the judgment of the nations. And as, when he finished saying it, it says all these things, it was something on his heart to lay out, because he knew we'd be sitting here uh, in these days, reading these things, looking at them, trying to get a bearing on the, the days we're living in. When he finished all of that, then he comes back to the cross. He comes back to the judgment that is about to take place, not the final judgment, the judgment that would take place on him. So you and I could be here this evening, so you and I could miss that final judgment. He comes back to the cross. And he's speaking to these guys. Now remember, as they're listening, they still haven't got a hold, really, of the whole scene that they're headed into. It says, when he finished all these things, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days is the feast of the Passover, And the Son of Man is to be betrayed, to be crucified. Now, you remember verse 5 here. They said, not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar among the people. But Jesus says, after two days, the feast of Passover, the Son of Man is to be betrayed. He's sovereign. This is when it will take place. Passover has to take you know, the, the crucifixion has to take place on Passover the same way the church has to be born on Pentecost. These feasts had been laid out, and there was no way that was going to change. He was the Lamb of God that took away the sin of the world. He was the one that was, you know, forecast in the, the Passover feast. There was no other day for him to die. The leadership of the nation, the religious leadership, they want to kill him. In fact, we're told they want to kill Lazarus, too, because he's bad for their theology. What a bummer. They kill, you know, he died once. They want to kill him again. They're saying here, we've got to get rid of him. So they assembled together, with the chief priests and the scribes and the elders and the people, unto the palace of the high priest. His name is Caiaphas. He's high priest from A.D. 18 to A.D. 
36. Uh, the Jewish high priest was Annas. But by this time, the Romans were appointing the high priest in Jerusalem because it was such a powerful position, and they wanted an ally. Caiaphas is the son-in-law of Annas. The religious Jews are still recognizing Annas, but the general population and the Romans are recognizing Caiaphas, and he's the one that they were dealing with. Caiaphas calls this, you know, meeting for all of the religious leaders to come at his palace, which was illegal in the sense that it broke Jewish law. Jewish law said when they had to meet, and particularly in in regards to a death penalty, and when we get further on, we'll look at all of those stipulations, that it had to be at the normal meeting place of the Sanhedrin. It could never have been in his house. He's breaking Jewish law. Well, it doesn't matter. He's going to murder the Messiah, so that's no biggie. And he consulted that they might take Jesus by subtlety, quietly, with their own ingenious methods, not to be seen, and kill him. You know, Psalm 2 said, why do the heathen rage? Why do the people imagine of any things? Why do, they take, why do they take counsel together? You know, how he might destroy the Lord and is anointed and so forth. This is certainly fulfilling, you know, parts of that from Psalm 2. And they said in their hearts, now, not on the the feast day, the Passover, lest there be an uproar among the people. They they had seen the triumphal entry. They had seen the multitude screaming, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Caiaphas understands he doesn't want to be in a jam with the Roman authorities. If there's an uproar, because Passover was the feast of deliverance. Passover was when God moved miraculously and delivered the children of Israel from the bondage of Egypt. So as Passover came, in the Jewish mind, they they looked at the similarities in the Roman bondage they were in, thinking, Lord, is this when you're going to do this? And when Christ comes in, many of them, this is the Messiah. You know, Lazarus had been risen from the dead, you know, kind of the coup de grace of his, his power there right before all this takes place. And, uh, and there, they knew he came in. The people were gathering around him. He overturned the tables of the money changers and so forth. The, this whole thing. And Caiaphas says, no, we, we, I don't want to kill him during the Passover because we might see then a revolt and uproar amongst the people, which is going to bring the Romans down on us. And they might kill us if they do this. Now, the, the numbers swelled during the mandatory feast. We know somewhat here, normally uh, right around 100,000, a little more, some estimated size, 500,000, the normal population of Jerusalem. The religious leaders would not allow them to take a census because they remembered what happened in David's life when he took a census and the plague came on the nation and so forth. But Josephus tells us that there were about 250 to 260,000 lambs sacrificed during this era on Passover. And if you're figuring 10 Jews per lamb, which the law kind of stipulates, so you're talking about a population of 2.5 to 3 million people, swollen, people camped all around the city and so forth, That's why they would whitewash the tombs, because if you touched the tomb, then you couldn't partake of the Passover. Jesus called the Pharisees and Sadducees whitewashed tombs. 
And these guys don't want to see this break forth in some time of, of a revolt or something and bring the Romans down on their heads. So they're saying, let's not do this now. We don't want that kind of trouble because there would have been tremendous tension beyond the normal tension that there was. Verse 6 says this, Now, when Jesus was in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. Now, we're going to come to this feast. It's described in Mark 14, I believe, and in John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Um, the difficulty is John chapter 12 tells us that this feast took place place six days before the Passover. People who give this a cursory reading, if they refer back to verse 2, where it says after two days of the Passover, then they try to put this dinner in Passion Week on Wednesday. And it doesn't fit there at all. The, the language in verse 6 says, now when Jesus was in Bethany, Literally, it says Jesus being in Bethany, and it's not a Greek phrase that's related to a chronological sequence. Matthew is not the chronologer even that Luke is. Matthew puts things in pieces because he wants to draw pictures, and he wants particularly the Jews to understand. So this feast in the house of Simon the leper, obviously Simon who used to be a leper and nobody would be over for dinner, um, takes place six days before, and it's before the triumphal entry, there in the house of Simon. Uh, Jewish tradition and uh, early church fathers seem to think that Simon is the father of Lazarus and Martha and Mary. There are some other obscure traditions that say he's Martha's husband, but the more substantial tradition gives us Simon. It's his home. Mary and Martha and Lazarus are there. It says, now when Jesus was in Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, at this feast, and I'm trying to imagine this crowd. You know, I, I think about that. Well, the guys are there with him, obviously, even Judas, bummer. But uh, Lazarus was there, who was dead. He's there at the feast. Martha is serving, you know, without griping, you know, no complaining. You know, you wonder who from the district, other people that may have been there. Uh, Mary again comes. John's the gospel that tells us this was Mary with the alabaster cruise uh, because he writes way after, 60 years after this or so. And uh, Mary, no doubt, from Bethany had passed on. So she's not named by the earlier writers just because of jeopardy with the Roman authorities, no doubt. But we know it's Mary. And, you know, three times we encounter Mary of Bethany, Martha's sister, and all three times she's at the feet of Jesus. The first time we find her is in Luke chapter 11 there when the disciples and Jesus come to Bethany and they're fixing dinner for him and the disciples making a meal and Martha comes out with a bad attitude and says Lord 
don't you care? My sister Mary, you know, the hippie, she's sitting at your feet, spacing out, and all this work to do, and you're not doing, and she blames the Lord. You're not doing anything about it. And he's Martha, Martha, you know, you're troubled about many things. But Mary has chosen the better part, and it's never going to be taken away from her. She's sitting at my feet. She's listening. The next time we see Mary is when Jesus comes and Lazarus is four days dead. He's in the tomb. Martha hears first that he's there. She runs. She meets him. She cries. She said, Lord, if you'd come, my brother still be alive. And he said, you know, Martha, I am the resurrection and life, so forth. Do you believe this? She said, yes. Then she goes and she gets Mary. And it says, Mary, when she comes, she runs and she falls down at his feet. And then this is the third time we meet her. And again, she falls down at his feet. It says here in Matthew's rendition, she anoints his head. John's rendition says, and his feet. So we see her once again worshiping this remarkable girl who we're going to meet pretty soon. Um, You'll know her because she'll smell great. It says, there came unto him this woman... And she has an alabaster box. It's a cruise. They were made with a long, thin neck on it. And it says a very precious ointment. She poured it on his head as he sat there to eat at the table. In John's gospel, he tells us it's worth about 300 denarii, 300 pence, 300 days wages. This is a year's salary, if you can imagine, because they would take the sixth day off every week. So it's more than a year's salary. Um, You know, think of this, this small container with a thin neck of this spikenard, which was gathered usually in India or in the Himalayas. It was a lesser form that was taken out of the mountains of Syria sometimes, but the the more valuable and expensive spikenard came from the Himalayas and from India and uh, came through the trade routes. And somehow she has this container of spikenard, which is worth $50,000, $60,000 today, if you can imagine. We're not told how she came by it. But this was the kind of thing that she might save for her wedding day and to break it open then as the guests and so forth were there. It was certainly something you would use at the death of a loved one. And I don't know how Lazarus feels sitting here because she didn't break it open for her brother when he died. It's this very precious ointment and here is where she breaks it open And she says, here she pours it on his head, John says, and on his feet, as he sat there at the table. But when his disciples saw it, they had indignation, saying, to what purpose is this waste? Because of the expense of the whole thing. We're told in John's Gospel, this is Judas who leads the protest. So these are the first recorded words of Judas that we have. What is the purpose of this waste? It's very interesting. It's the same word uh, I find it interesting for perdition. Jesus, in John's Gospel, when he prays, 
Um, he says this in John 17. He says, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me, I have kept. None of them is lost but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. The son of waste. What he said to Jesus knows why was this waste? He's the son of waste, it says in John 17, 12. Why was this waste made, he said. He said, this could have been sold and given to the poor. Poor Judas is what he's thinking. Because it tells us that he held the bag. Isn't that interesting? You know, out of the disciples, it's an, it's an interesting collection, by the way. You know, you got fishermen, you got a zealot who's a daggerman who likes to stab people in the back. That's the group he's from. And you've got a tax collector who's writing the gospel here who the daggerman would love to have stabbed in the back. Then you got Judas. He's the only one from Judea, is Kerioth, from the city of Kerioth. All the rest are Galileans. It's just this interesting collection of people. And the Lord allows Judas to keep the bag. You know, he says in John 6, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil. Isn't it interesting? He knew who Judas was. He's going to say this night, one of them's going to betray him at the feast, the Passover. And I think... Isn't it interesting he let Judas, and, and he never treated Judas differently because when he says one of you is going to betray me, we'll see it. They all start to say, is it me? Is it me? None of them. They don't all go like this. There he is, Judas. We knew this was coming. No. So, so, so there isn't anything in his character. He's been with the Lord. He's watching the miracles and so forth. And the Lord lets him run the finances. He lets him hold the bag. And I wonder, you know, you know, I believe, though it wasn't going to happen because it was written of him, this fate, says in John 17. But at any point, Judas could have fallen down before the Lord and said, forgive me. I was wrong. I didn't see. Even I betrayed you. They're coming for you. And he would have been received. And I, and I wonder if the Lord, you know, when he kisses him in Gethsemane, he says, friend... Betrayest thou me with a kiss? I think God's incredible grace here at this time. And Judas is griping and complaining. You know, this could have been sold. We could have given it to the poor. And Jesus understood it. He, he knew that this was going on. He said to them... Why trouble ye the woman? For she hath wrought a good work upon me. For you have the poor always with you. Evidently Karl Marx never read this, or the socialist. You have the poor always with you, but you have not me always. Now look, so, so there's going to be times in the picture here she gives everything she has. 
In Mark 14, he says, she hath done what she could. Done what she could. She broke open a $50,000 bottle of perfume. And, you know, she certainly did what she could. She gave her best. She gave her best. She hadn't walked with him all through his life. She hadn't seen all of his miracles. She hadn't seen what the disciples had seen. And yet she perceived something about him from sitting at his feet. He's going to say, she's anointed me for my burial. And this cruise that she didn't even break for her brother, she breaks for Jesus. Her heart is broken. She anoints him. Jesus says she was perceiving something in that. And John, John tells us that the aroma filled the house, filled the house. Look, we see women, I don't know if I'm allowed to say women, <laughs> depicted all kinds of way in our culture. We have complete gender insanity. And when anybody identifies women, sexual objects, this is the way you dress. This is what you do. Understand, things never change. And if you worship Jesus and you give everything you have for him, you're going to get criticized. Maybe even by those in your own house. Maybe by other worshipers. Maybe by his disciples. But she can't hold back. She pours everything out. And John says the aroma of that filled the whole house. We can smell it here tonight. Jesus said this is going to be a memorial to her throughout the whole world. We're still smelling the aroma of this spikenard here at Calvary Chapel tonight. These, you know, This is incredible. It's the only memorial he ever established of this kind. And the truth is still there. A woman who loves Jesus with all of her heart and, and serves him and, and gives what she can. You know, it, it, it may be insignificant to everybody else. It might have been Alabaster Cruz sitting there. Nobody and she, But she gives what she can. She yields. She worships. She loves him. That aroma still fills the whole house. A woman, a mom, a grandma, a wife, a daughter who's on fire for Jesus Christ and the culture we're living in, no matter what the culture says about womanhood, who loves Jesus and gives her best and serves him, that aroma is still wonderful today. It's still rare. It comes all the way from the Himalayas, as it were, from the mountains, from the high places, you know. And it still fills the house today. What a great picture and a great exhortation in some ways. For he says, for in that she poured out this ointment on my body, she did it for my burial. Verily I say unto you, that wheresoever this gospel shall be preached in the whole world. So he's looking to our day. There shall also this that this woman hath done be told for a memorial of her. What an interesting picture. And as I as I look at this, you know, he says she's anointed me for my burial. 
uh, I'm assuming, you know, this is pungent spikenard. You know, times in Israel been able to get just a tiny bit of it in the bottle to smell it. It's very pungent and aromatic. I'm wondering, you know, she dumped it on his head. You ever, you know, take oil and dump it in your hair? Quite a job to get it out. And on his feet. And I wonder, in Gethsemane, if that aroma was still with him, if he could smell it. I wonder, as he was being beaten and scourged, if he could still smell that spikenard. I wonder on the cross if he could smell it. I wonder when he rose. I wonder when he rose. He had that sweet smell of spikenard upon him, what Mary had done for him. What an interesting picture. And it's recorded in Matthew, Mark, John. The Lord certainly brings it in front of us. And it says, then one of the twelve, and again, it doesn't indicate chronology, then one of the twelve, it can, but it doesn't. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said unto them, what will you give me, and I will deliver him unto you, And they covenanted with him for 30 pieces of silver. And from that time, I think this is the fourth time this phrase is used in Matthew, from that time, each one sets off a distinct set of circumstances. From that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. Now Luke gives it to us um, this way, I believe. If I can find it in my computer notes here. It says, now the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it drew nigh, which is called Passover. The chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the peop- but they feared the people. Then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve. And he went his way, and he uh, communed with the chief priests, and the captains, how he might betray him unto them, they were glad and covenanted to give him money. So the interesting thing we know from Luke that when this took place, wherever is in the sequence, that Satan was directly involved. Look, for, for any of us, if we per- betray Christ, and that's not something as his children we should do, but... You know, there's spiritual warfare involved in that, no doubt. And this this would be the epicenter of it, where Judas now goes to the priests, and he's looking for some way to betray him. He's asking for money, and Luke tells us Satan entered into him when he does that. He, Satan enters into him again a second time at the Last Supper. But here, previous to that, evidently there's satanic influence uh, as he does this, and he goes to the chief priest. Now, you know... He had been rebuked at this feast and, and, you know, leave her alone. What are you doing? She's done a good thing. Judas, what were his motives? You know, when he, when he followed Jesus, no doubt he had hopes and aspirations 
This is going to be the Messiah. He's going to set up his kingdom. And if it gets divided 12 ways, I'm going to get mine, you know. He, he had this no doubt idea, as did the other disciples, that the kingdom was going to be established. And he was sticking with the king. And he held the bag. And you're probably thinking, there ain't nothing in here compared to what we're going to see, you know. And then as Jesus began to talk about his crucifixion, as Jesus then began to go through these circumstances, and now, you know, he know Jesus himself is saying, this is going to happen now. He's going to be crucified on the Passover. And uh, that she's anointed me for my burial. He says it out loud. Judas somehow so disillusioned with all of this, some scholars feel, you know, I got nothing to lose. This is a win-win. I'm going to go and I'm going to betray him. I'm going to get as much money as I can. When the soldiers come, identify his whereabouts. If he is Messiah, he's going to rise up in glory and overthrow the whole thing. And this will just initiate the kingdom. Some scholars think that's the way he was thinking. Otherwise, if he ain't who we thought he was all along, I'm at least going to get some silver and get out of town. So he thinks this is a win-win. Here's the interesting thing as I look at it. Look, he had gone out with the other disciples, healed the sick, cast out demons, raised the dead, preached the kingdom. Important for you and I look at that and realize, you know, that miracles don't produce conversion. Because you have unsaved friends. People say, well, if I could see this, or I knew this, or I could see a sign. No, no, it doesn't work. It doesn't do that. Judas saw all of it. Peter says we're born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible seed, which is the word of God. It's the word of Christ. It's what he said that enters into us and brings forth life. It's not witnessing miracles. That never produces conversion. And Judas here looks for this way to betray him. From that time forward, he's looking for the opportunity. He's taking 30 pieces of silver you know, compared to the spikenard, that was no value at all. He's taken 30 pieces of silver, which is the price of a slave, the price of a gourd slave. If your ox gourd, your neighbor's slave, you had to pay your neighbor 30 pieces of silver. Uh, look, just like Passover was, was destined to take place in God's sovereignty, and just like Pentecost was destined to be the day the church began, Zechariah said, And I said unto them, If you think good, give me my price, and if not, forbear. So they weighed out for my price 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said unto me, Cast it into the potter, a goodly price that I was uh, priced at of them. And I took the 30 pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. So uh, this, this thing written ahead of time. And as he said in John 17, I lost none but the son of perdition as it was written. So here, Judas entering into this, Satan entering into Judas, the whole plot is being laid here. It says, now, the first day of the week, first day of the Feast of, of Unleavened Bread, excuse me, the disciples came to Jesus, saying unto him, where wilt thou that we should prepare for thee and eat the Passover. Now, the interesting thing is here, as they come and ask Jesus, it means they don't know where they're going to do it. If they don't know, Judas doesn't know either. 
That's the beauty of this. And the Lord, as Peter and John, we find out in the other gospel, he says, just go. You're going to run into this guy, you're going to, you know, bearing water on his head, which was a woman's responsibility. And that day you follow him, you ask him, say, the master has need. He'll show you an upper room and so forth. And they're able then to gather there. Judas doesn't know until he comes there where it is, so he can't, you know, betray him at the dinner. He betrays him after that as Jesus goes to Gethsemane because it was a place, it says, he often resorted but they're going to celebrate the Passover look this is a pre-law feast this is not a Levitical feast this is the first feast of Israel and it's before all other feasts it was given before Moses gave the law on the night that the children of Israel were delivered from Egypt by the blood of a lamb interesting it says the, the blood was put on the doorposts and on the lentil, which made two crosses, and the lamb was slaughtered in the sopf, it's an Egyptian word, which was a trench in the doorway so water wouldn't come in the house. So you have the lamb slaughtered between two other crosses and the blood poured out there at the doorway, certainly anticipatory, looking forward to the one true lamb of God that would come. So this Feast. This is the last anticipatory Passover celebrated in the history of mankind. The Jews that keep the Seder, now they celebrate its memorial, the ones that are believers, looking back. The ones that are not believers, that Passover doesn't look forward to anything because Christ has come and fulfilled it. The memorial now... It's a memorial now. It's no longer anticipatory, but it was given anticipating. Interesting thing is, you know, the seven feasts of Israel, by this time, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread are woven together. It's even called the Feast of Unleavened Bread in place, synonymous. You had the Feast of Passover, you have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which turned it into a seven-day feast. Typically, the day before the Passover, they clean all the leaven out of the house. And then three days after the Passover, you had the Feast of First Fruits, where the priest went into the temple and he waved a sheaf of grain at the altar, looking forward to the harvest that would come and Pentecost would be celebrated. But it was the First Fruits. It was a token of that which is coming. And Paul tells us Jesus is the first fruits of those who rose from the dead. He's rising on the third day on the Feast of First Fruits. So you have the Feast of Passover, Unleavened Bread, and First Fruits looking at his first coming. Fifty days later, Pentecost begins. It's the birth of the church, and it is the age that we live in. The last three feasts see his second coming, the Feast of Trumpets. I'm looking forward to that one. That may be when we get out of here. Then the Feast of Atonement, when the, the, the sin of the nation is paid for, certainly the second. Then the Feast of Booze, Sukkoth, uh, where they remember how faithful God had been to them in all their journeys. So we're in an interesting time. Uh, right now as we look at this but he sends these two guys to make ready he said go into the city to such a man 
and say unto him, The master saith, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at thy house with my disciples. It's interesting. In this verse, Charles Spurgeon said, Are we willing to do the master's errands? We want to do big things for Jesus all the time. He said, are we willing to do the master's errands? Go here. Set the table. Wash the dishes. You see a guy with a pitcher on his head, follow him. And then when you see where the upper room is, make ready for the Passover. Things that can change the world. You know, I, I don't have it memorized, but I always remember that one life can change the world. There's a story, and I'll read it sometime. Uh, of a man that, that worked in a shoe store and he just wanted to serve the Lord and the Lord told him, I want you to witness this 14-year-old kid that worked in a shoe store. So he witnessed to that kid and led him to the Lord. That kid's name was D.L. Moody. And at 14 years old, that guy led him to the Lord. He gets saved. And then it follows a sequence of who he then leads to the Lord who happened to lead Mordecai Ham to the Lord. Mordecai Ham preaching at a revival and a 16-year-old named Billy Graham listening and gets saved. And Billy Graham changed the moral climate of earth. And it was because a man in a shoe store was willing to do the Lord's errands. We never know the chain of events, the things. Are we willing, you know, look, it's for me, if I'm somewhere, he says, talk to that person or pick that up for that person or help this person or I think, you know, something like, Lord, I'm busy. Oh, really? You don't want to change the world? You know, just shut up and do what I'm telling you to do. You know, don't call me Lord and then not, listen, you know, not do the things I do. So you know, the Spurgeon said, looks at this verse and, he, you know, are we willing to do the Lord's errands? I think what a beautiful picture. Go and do this and, and then you'll prepare the place for the Passover. And then it says this, and the disciples did as Jesus had appointed them. And they made ready the Passover. And when evening was come, he sat down with the twelve. This is not a board meeting. It says sat, it's literally he reclined with the twelve. They would sit at what was called a triclinium. They'd be around the table. There were there was an end and two sides, and they would go around that. Here's the interesting thing. It says that Peter and John went and prepared for this dinner. And part of what they had to do in that preparation was they also had to get a lamb. And there are interesting descriptions of this process in this particular day. There's a Ph.D. at Bar-Ilan University named Joseph Taberoy who writes on it. There's another professor, and I can't remember his name, at Notre, Notre Dame who wrote a beautiful piece on this. Uh, Barnes mentions it in his notes. Um, there's early writings in the first century between Trypho, a rabbi, and Clement, the first Clement there, who was a disciple of Jesus, talk about this. Because what had happened as the years went by, when you read the original account of Passover, it was the father in the home who was to take a lamb. And the kids knew this lamb, you know, just... And, and then he, you examine him and so forth, and then sacrifice him and bleed him out and skin him, the father. 
And then it would be roasted alive with the entrails, with all the, the intestines and everything. And then they would eat it till morning and burn what was left, you know, that Passover night when they were set free. But that was when it all began with those instructions. But as time went on and the priesthood is established and so forth, it changes hand and it becomes the priests then that offer the sacrifice, the, the Passover lambs. And, and of course, by this day, they're making all kinds of money ripping people off to produce one that they, that they you know, say is kosher. But you would come to the temple area and, and the thousands of these lambs are being slaughtered they had drainage system there, that water that came all the way from southern Judah by Hebron. And I saw the huge quarries when you used to be able to go down there. A 35-mile pipeline that the Romans built, Herod the Great, came up to wash away the blood in the temple courts. And it would wash down into the Kidron. Kidron means black. And the whole valley would turn black from the blood of, of hundreds of thousands of lambs. Remarkable, remarkable. But John and Peter had to bring a lamb to the temple. The priest would examine it. And then what the priest would do is he would cut the neck and bleed the lamb out so there was no blood. And then they would take a pomegranate skewer. You could Google this and find it, please. And they would push it through the shoulders without breaking a bone. So they could hang the lamb up then, and they would hang the lamb up, and they would skin it. They would take all of its skin off and take it down, and then they'd wrap the lamb in the skin and leave it on the pomegranate skewer, the stick, and then you would take it home to roast it. They would skin the animal, leave the guts in. When you got home, you put the longer stick through the lamb's mouth, out the buttocks. You tied the back legs to the skewer, you tied the front legs to the one that went through the shoulders. And Trifo, the rabbi, said to Clement, Clement, every Passover, there are tens of thousands of lambs crucified. Because that lamb, skinned, flayed like Jesus would be. Of course, the cross going through him, it, you had a cross, this one main stake going down through the body, the back legs tied to it, the other one going through the shoulders, the arms of the lamb tied to it. Then he was placed on the fire and, and roasted there. And you think, what was Jesus thinking? He said, with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover. It's going to tell us when he breaks the bread and gives the cup that he gives thanks. Just imagine. He's looking at his own destiny. He's looking at this animal roasting. He's looking at this cross turning around and around as Peter and John prepared and they came. And they, It was part of the dinner. It was part of the law that this lamb was eaten with the dinner. It says here... Now when even was come, he sat down, he reclined at the table with the twelve. And as they did eat, he said, Verily I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. And I'm wondering, what was Judas thinking when he said that? Because he had already made the deal for 30 pieces of silver. What was Judas thinking? Did Jesus look at him? 
he says, one of you will betray me. And look, he, he drops the bomb. Here's the rest of them. He just ruined, you know, I love rack of lamb. He just ruined the whole thing here. They were, were exceedingly sorrowful and began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, Kuria, Jehovah, Lord, is it I? Isn't that interesting? The same thing would happen. If we were sitting around a table with Jesus and 12 other people, and he would look at us all and say, one of you is going to betray me, every one of us would go, Ruh-roh, that's me, I know it. Because we all have that traitor that lives within. We all still have that carnal nature that we have to keep under the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. And isn't it interesting, every one of them, and they called him Lord. Judas is going to call him something else. Every one of them said, Lord, is it me? I knew it. I knew I would blow this. Lord, is it me? Isn't it interesting? He answers and says, He that dippeth his hand with me in the dish, the same shall betray me. The Son of Man goeth as it is written of him. That's why he knew he would die on the Passover. But woe unto that man, he says, by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for him. The idea is better for that man if he had not been born. Jesus says non-existence is preferable to hell. It had been better never to existed than to exist eternally separated in outer darkness. It would have been better for that man if he had never been born. Picture at the table here is very interesting. The triclinium. Jesus is in the seat of the host, number two. Number one, they, they would all be at the table on their left elbow on a sofa. The table's here. We've eaten at a triclinium in Israel before. And John is the first one at the table. He's number one. Jesus is number two. We're told because John leans back upon his breast. Just imagine how incredible that is. The seat of honor is the third seat. That's a Judas. Because it's going to tell us that Jesus dips the bread in the sop. He sops with him. Peter's all the way around the other side. Because Peter says to John, ask him this, ask him that. You know, he's all around Peter the way he is. He's around the other. So you have this remarkable scene that's taking place at this table. And he says, the one who dips with me in the dish, that's the desired seat. And the Son of Man is going to go as it's written of him. Psalm 40, sacrifice and offering, that would not, but... Though I come in the volume of the book, it's written of me to do thy will of a body thou hast prepared for me, and so forth. It's written of him, Woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good that that man had not been born. Then Judas, which betrayed him, answered. He finally says, he doesn't say, Lord, is it, is it I? He says, Master, the Greek is Rabbi, Rabbi. The rest of them call him Lord. Judas alone calls him teacher, rabbi. He says rabbi because that's the only value he placed on him at this point in time. He says, Rabbi, is it I? And he said unto him, Thou hast 
said. John 13 gives us these details um, as we look at the scene. It says, Then John, lying on Jesus' breast, said unto him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, He it is whom I shall give the sop when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it unto Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after after that sop, Satan entered into him. So it's the second time during this week this takes place. Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus to him, What thou doest, doest quickly. And no man at the table knew for what intent he spoke this to him. For some thought, because Judas had the bag, that Jesus had said unto him, Buy those things that we have need of against the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. He then, having received the sop, went immediately out, filled with Satan, and it was night. And it's been that way for Judas ever since. Then Judas, who betrayed him, says, Master, is it I? He said unto him, Thou hast said, he affirms, Yes, it's you. And as they were eating, Judas goes out now before the supper really is established. As they were eating, Jesus took bread and he blessed it. Some of your translations might have a gloss in the column says he gave thanks, or your translation might say he gave thanks. And he break it and he gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and now it specifically says he gave thanks. And he gave it unto them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, if you can imagine, which is said for many for the remission of sin. So he takes the bread. There's a whole process here as they gather the tradition. And it's probably different today than exactly the way it was then. They would take the first cup, the first cup, the host or the father, He would toast the whole thing and say a prayer. They would take the first cup together. Then there was a second cup um, that was taken. And after that cup followed bitter herbs and other things. And then the Passover meal itself was eaten. Then the third cup, which is called the cup of blessing, is the one Jesus took then and turned it into the communion cup. Paul says... In 1 Corinthians 11, the cup that we bless, is it not the cup of blessing? And that's the third cup in the the, the Passover meal. It says right here, he took bread and he blessed, he gave thanks. We know that because in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, that which I have received of the Lord, it's emphatic there. Me, imagine this, Paul says, you know, the, the, the Antichrist of the book of Acts. Me, you know. I received myself from the Lord himself. That in the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had specifically given thanks. So we know the translation here of blessed should be that. He took bread. He gave thanks for it. He broke it. And he gave it to the disciples saying, take eat. This is my body. Just I, I look at that and I think he's breaking the bread and giving thanks knowing what was ahead of him, giving thanks, giving thanks, saw us here this evening, 2,000 years later, 
Bibles on our laps, singing praises, watching the news and hoping he'll come every day. It says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, you know, you know, despising the shame, embracing the glory of it, which is you and I, and it's a kingdom that's coming, because he's going to say that right here. He gave thanks. That's unimaginable to me. No one else knew what was in his heart when he did that. He said, take, eat, this is my body. And then it says, and he took the cup. Again, he gave thanks. Paul says that he learned that communion table from the Lord himself, and he affirms that. He gave thanks, and he gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it. For this is the blood of the new covenant, the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins, changing from an anticipatory Passover to a memorial of the Lord's Supper, But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So Jesus is seeing past the cross when he says this. He says, we're going to drink this cup again together anew in my Father's kingdom. You know, people always say that when, when there's kind of a, you know, little bit of a, you know, get in a tiff with another believer about wine, whether they should be drinking or not. That's always their excuse. Jesus drank wine. Right? He did. He was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. And I want to be like Jesus. Me too. And he ain't going to drink wine again until he drinks it anew in his father's kingdom. So if you want to be like him, you're waiting like me. When Jesus gives me wine, I'm drinking it. Until then, I'm waiting. He said, he's waiting, I'm waiting. I want to be like him. And the time is coming. He said this is going to happen in his father's kingdom. He's looking all the way down through the ages to that day. I think how remarkable. You know, we're going to drink it with him in his kingdom, this new wine. How wonderful it will be. It'll be of joy and not of drunkenness. And when they had sung a hymn, it says, and Then they went out to the Mount of Olives, probably Psalm 115 to Psalm 118. They would sing Psalm 113 and 114 earlier in the meal. They would end by singing, you know, the rest of the Hillel Psalms, Psalm 15 to 18. And then they go out to the Mount of Olives. He crosses the Kidron. He had been crossing that at least every year since he's 12. Remember, his parents took him up when he was 12. They lost him, had to go back and find him. And every year, when he crossed that valley and it was black with the blood of lambs, he knew that it was looking forward to his own blood. And it's amazing to me, here, it says they sung a hymn. It was on his heart as he sung. You look at the words in those Psalms, 115 and 118, incredible. Tie the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. As the Lord's doing is marvelous. It's incredible. And I wonder what his voice was like. I know he didn't sing out of tune. Right? I know he didn't sing out of tune. Did he sing with tears in his eyes as this took place? You know, these songs of ascension and the Hillel Psalms, how remarkable. 
Tonight he's not singing, but he's at the right hand of the Father where he ever liveth and he makes intercession for us. He's praying for us tonight. And uh, he endured the cross, despising the shame. He saw his Father's kingdom. He saw it was coming. He saw you and I sitting here this evening. And he, he saw that lamb turning on a cross at the Passover dinner and knew that it was his destiny, you know, and even the fire in the three hours of darkness. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me when the wrath of Almighty God? The, the sacrifices in the Old Testament were not just bled out, they were burned. You know, and, and Christ didn't just bleed out, he suffered eternally somehow in those three hours of darkness that in the ages to come we'll still be learning of. Because when he came out of the darkness, he said to Telestai, it is finished. Before he died physically, something was finished eternally. It is finished. And it was after that he gave up the ghost. Father, in thy hands I commend my spirit. So interesting pictures, very specific, very direct, very important. Now, let me ask you a question, you know. I remember... uh, my dad was Catholic. My mom was Lutheran. Growing up in the Lutheran church, I had no idea what any of this was about. I remember at 13 when they let us take our first communion, and that wafer stuck on the roof of my mouth. You know, I can't get it. There wasn't anything like this in my mind at all. And here we sit tonight. Here we sit tonight. We have hope. We look at the world unraveling. We listen to his word, and it may be in a different way than we did a year ago. Maybe we seek his presence in a little bit of a different way than we did a year ago. Our world, who cares whether it's the Sixers or the Eagles or everything, all of those edges are frayed now. They've lost meaning. But the central things have become more precious. They're glowing brighter than ever before. Amen? And he saw us. He saw us. The Son of Man is going to go as it is written of him. The Passover feast. Not Levitical. Pre-law. The oldest feast in God's heart. The feast of deliverance. The blood of the Lamb. Delivering people from bondage. I'm so thankful. If you're here tonight with us and you don't know Christ, get up here afterwards. We'd love to pray with you, give you a Bible, some literature to read. Again, many have come now from the Catholic Church, Methodist Church, denominational churches, and people are telling me, we never knew you could study the Bible. We never heard Revelation. We never Look, the other thing you have to need, if you never study the Bible, you need to know this. You have to be born again to get to heaven. Gotta be, you can't just be Catholic. You've got to be a born-again Catholic. You can't just be a Calvary Chapel person. You've got to be a born-again Calvary Chapel person. You can't just be a Methodist. You've got to be a born-again Methodist. I'm not telling you to join anything. I'm just telling you, you need to be born again. And if you've been enjoying the fellowship here, and you know that's something I haven't done, um, the musicians are going to come. We're going to sing the last song, but we'll kind of be up here afterwards, and we'd love to talk with you and pray with you. If you haven't made that public confession of Christ, you need to come. You need to do that, and you need to, need to walk out of here tonight knowing my, my eternal destiny has changed. My sins are forgiven. The arms of the Savior are open. Through his work on the cross, I am now accepted. Amen? Let's stand. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these things as we look into them, Lord. And they're familiar, Lord. They always deepen, Lord. 
they're, they're things new and old, Lord. They're, they're impressions that have been on our hearts, Lord, from the first time we read through this, and then there are new impressions tonight. Lord, your word is alive. It's never stagnant. It never, the depths of it are never measured. So, Lord, we love to study your word, to read through, and to find things we've never seen before, and to let it speak to us in a fresh fresh way, Lord. We're so thankful that it's alive. We're so thankful, Lord, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld your glory, glorious of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So, Lord Jesus, give us our portion this evening. Lord, let us let us never, Lord, step back from running your errands. Let us never hesitate when we feel you're putting the simplest thing on our hearts. And, Lord, we do pray for those maybe here tonight that have never made that decision. And they're ready. They're done with the world. They're done with the emptiness. They're ready to come, that you would draw them. Give us the privilege, Lord, of of saying that prayer with them. We put these things before you, Lord. We pray in your name. Amen.